Okay. Well, I'm recording. You're recording. I am live. Well, Dr. James Whiting is here on the Rudimental Podcast. We've been talking about this for a long time. We have. And we're doing it remotely. Uh, this is my first remote podcast. And we'll see if it works or not. And so the uh, COVID-19 quarantine is still happening. And it is, I guess, I wouldn't say almost over. I guess it's um, getting to the point where restrictions are starting to lighten up. The last episode I did was with um, my buddy Robert. And that was when it just had started. So uh, a lot's happened in the past month, five weeks. Um, a lot of stuff happening between my two cities of Vegas and Houston. And uh, in the meantime, the Vegas mayor made a fool of herself on national television. <laughs> uh, I... Have the bulk of my master's work done, which is exciting. Yeah, man. And that occurred yesterday, um, was me wrapping that stuff up. And James te- texted me yesterday. He's like, when do you want to do this podcast? I was like, let's do it tomorrow. So uh, one of my dear friends, Dr. James Whiting, uh, we met in my first year at UNLV. He uh, was in his last year of his doctoral program correct uh for percussion performance and uh he's australian so he's very australian and well not very australian <laughs> you you your your accent smoothed out since i've known you and well, well that's uh, good uh, I, yeah. I, have, I have people tell me that uh that i don't sound australian at all anymore <laughs> well uh, I think you're, uh, well, you're obviously more Australian than me. So there's that. And then, uh, but now we met in our last year, we, uh, we bonded over a trip to the Mill Pond Music Festival, uh, in, uh, California. Uh, I forget the town. Is it, is that Baker? Bishop. Bishop. Bishop, Cal- Bishop yeah. California. It was my first performance at UNLV, um. It was a, we were doing a steel band thing and James was like, Hey, you want to ride with me? And I was like, sure. So we drove four and a half hours through Death Valley National Park where it's just nothing but desert and heat. And it was in September. So, um, but yeah, we met then. And, uh, since then we've become really good friends and, uh, we send each other memes and we talk about music. And he is a fantastic jazz vibraphonist. He's not only just a jazz vibraphonist, he's a great musician overall. And uh, yeah, welcome Dr. James Whiting. Thanks for having me, man. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, yeah absolutely, man. The, uh, I, I think the, the thing about this quarantine is it, it's helped us all realize a little bit of what our goals are. And um, especially myself, uh, what has been your kind of main thing that you've been focusing on during this quarantine well man it's interesting because i've gone i think like a lot of people i've gone through a lot of different uh phases in 
this these past kind of two months three months um in the first the first kind of three four weeks of uh the quarantine i was going through some residency and and visa difficulties that i won't particularly go into because it's boring um but i was making sure that i was taking care of my situation as best as i could there uh and then once i kind of reached the end of the line of taking care as much as i could on my part i then shifted my focus into what i really wanted to be doing which is things uh things of a creative nature uh and a performance nature so um i have an unfortunate habit of taking on not necessarily taking on but being inspired to start a whole bunch of different things generally all at the one time um and <laughs> and <laughs> these past couple of weeks haven't been any different there's been a, probably about six or seven things that i've started uh and probably two or three that i've seen through to their finality at the moment with with the others that have been shelved for um another time or i you know i need something else to complete it or, or or purely my attention just moved somewhere else but uh right. I, I i have had a lot of um a lot of joy in creating these uh, uh tracks these ar arrangements and orchestrations of tracks uh via garage band now garage band I, I don't i don't recall if i told you this when i when i kind of started doing it but um when garage band came out i was in uh high school or middle school maybe and uh when it initially came out it was kind of it, it was it was mostly based on uh on loops and and being able to create create tracks right. with all these pre-recorded loops and don't get me wrong the loops were all kick-ass um but what how it was used at least in australia in the education system is is uh it was introduced as a way for students that were taking music that weren't particularly apt in theory composition history yeah. just music in general yeah <laughs> um you know they they liked music they had appreciation for music but anyway for for place the place the chord progressions for you and stuff like that that's it man and and so this was this was a means to an end for the students that didn't necessarily know what they were doing in a notation sense, uh, and they could still fulfill their composition um, or their creating tasks uh, in in senior music back in Australia. So I always kind of gave it a wide uh, berth because I thought I thought it was you know it was a hack program and <laughs> all, all that kind of stuff. But I I don't know why I pulled it back up uh several weeks ago i've i actually can't remember why i pulled it up but for whatever reason i pulled it up and started playing around with it and realized that it uh uses basically the logitech sound uh, or the Log not logitech the logic sound library um which yeah those general like apple samples yeah right that uh that i frequently use in in main stage when i do various things so uh i just started kind of playing around and discovering sounds and and just kind of started recording stuff um with no particular goal in mind i was just messing around i mean it was the beginning of quarantine and everyone was bored 
so I started messing around and I was talking with my really great friend who you also know, um, Katie Marie Jones, uh, and we were talking about uh, maybe doing something, some kind of little project just for fun, uh, and she'd recently watched this uh, Judy Garland documentary or series or something on, uh-huh. I, I think on Netflix, uh, and she said, you know, can we do Over the Rainbow? I'm feeling really inspired. I said, yeah, of course. So I pulled up, uh, pulled up some sheet music to Over the Rainbow and then kind of arranged and orchestrated on the fly, which is generally a no-no in in the composition world to do stuff on the fly, but it just, it was all kind of flowing, so I just let it happen. Uh, and I created this, this orchestration for her for Over the Rainbow, sent it to her, uh, and then a couple of weeks went by, and uh, she got back to me and said, hey, we're, you know, I've been invited to do this performance for Monday's Dark, uh, telethon to raise money for the actors fund uh and i'd love for you to be involved with it and i was like cool she said what do you want to what do you want to play and i said well you're the you know you're the you're the headliner what do you want to sing and <laughs> anyway we went through a bunch of options and eventually ended up back on over the rainbow since we'd already kind of started it so uh i finished it off she recorded it we submitted it um to to Mark Chinook at Monday's Dark, uh, and unfortunately another person before us had uh, had chosen to do that song, so we had to pick a new song, which was a blessing in disguise, uh, because then we turned our attention to doing uh, Colors of the Wind from the Disney Pocahontas movie, which is a beautiful piece of music. Uh, and- I, uh, I, I, when you, when y'all posted that, uh, when I watched it, um, I couldn't pinpoint where what disney movie that was from but i was like man this is a great song and then i realized it was pocahontas this is the probably the disney movie i've watched the least but yeah. now i kind of want to check it out it, it you know what i'm the same man i think i've watched pocahontas maybe twice three times in in my lifetime i was never particularly uh fond of that disney vault classic um but anyway i'll, I'll circle back around to that so anyway we decided to do colors of the wind um and we were really in a time crunch to do it as well we had basically 36 hours to to get it done for me to arrange it orchestrate it record it get it to her get her to lay the vocals down do all the video put it together um and get it off to monday's dark and and we did so we just kind of you know uh got to the grindstone and and did it and it turned out really nice i mean i was really happy with how it came out yeah it was great uh, it was great everything except the percussion instruments on that track were all played in by keyboard. They're all virtual instruments, which is hard to tell at some points. Now, um, mostly that's because, uh, intelligence on my part, I, I was careful not to go outside of the constraints of the sound library. Um, cause as, as you know, and as a lot of people know with some of these virtual sampled sounds, um, once you start going either too low or too high in a particular register, it starts to really uh, pinpoint the inaccuracies of the right. virtual sound. Um, so I was careful to, to try and keep away from that and, and keep it sounding as real as possible. And as I said, man, I mean, I, I, I really liked it. Katie really liked it. And and, and the folks who have, have checked it out, either live or or via the... Uh, the subsequent posting on on katie's youtube um really enjoyed the track so that's that's inspired me to keep going i'm currently working on this uh this track of blackbird that her and i are gonna do uh and i i posted 
uh, just a cheeky little uh, video of me playing a, a vibe solo over the little, yeah, the, yeah o- over the little solo section that I that I put in the in the arrangement and uh, yeah, it was great. I, I texted you immediately after you posted that because I wanted to know um, what your what your setup was with that because you had just ordered some AKG uh, four P four twenties P four twenties. That's them. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is what I'm using right now, and uh, what was great, great company AKG. They are man. I I when I was a kid uh, in high school, I took uh, music tech coursework for for like two or three years, um, and uh, the the studio that was attached to the high school. Very fortunate to have this. It was it was a kind of state of the art recording studio. One of the one of the best in um in the city uh and they had a lot of akg stuff uh they had you know akg uh, c414s and i i got really familiar with recording with those and they're they're fairly expensive i mean um here in the u.s i think they're currently retailing around about nine hundred thousand dollars per microphone um but anyway that made me aware of the akg brand across the the years i've you, you know as i've gotten more into the music direction sound design all those sorts of things right um i've uh, become more aware of of the equipment the different things you know the neumann and audio technica and shore and blah 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 all these brands um, well like i was uh like i was mentioning to you before it seems like the lower price point mics are becoming higher and higher quality i mean I'm recording right now with a 2030 AT2035 Audio Technica mm-hmm. and it's only a step above their 2020 which is their their bottom line $100 condenser mic and this thing sounds great. Right. And it, you you're totally right man. I uh, I I remember when I first started playing a lot of live vibe gigs back in back in Australia I bought uh this matched pair that would like Pretty much the lowest quality condenser microphones you can get. Uh, they, were, yeah. they were bearing a C something, or, or uh, but anyway, there were these there were these two little small small capsule um, like pen mics. Yeah, pe- pencil mics, uh, and they were great, man. I mean, they they did what they needed to do, um, but uh, that was the last time I actually owned condenser microphones, and of course now I live here in Vegas, so I didn't bring any of that junk with me, but. The reason why I bought these um, AKG P420s uh, is I had two two projects come up vibraphone related uh, in the past couple of weeks. One is for a, a virtual big band performance, oh, cool. um, which I've already recorded. And the other is for uh, a recording for a for a great saxophone player here in Vegas um, that we've been talking about about uh, me laying some overdubbing some vibes on this record that he that he recorded for like six or eight months now um and our schedules just never quite lined up i was either on a show or he was out on the road or or whatever it may be but uh the i guess the silver lining of the quarantine is it's placed everyone in a static place and everyone knows that you you know you ain't doing shit so uh so you know let's let's do some fun stuff so that that's why i bought the mics and and uh yeah they were like uh, they were like 180 or something per microphone but you know relatively cheap and yeah. uh yeah i recorded via i recorded the the virtual big band arrangement with the match pair in the morning and was really really quite impressed with them um and then took them down to to you know 
make sure that that all that audio and that video was sweet and sent it off um to to carlos and then thought you know what i'm i'm gonna do that that vibe solo now for for colors of the wind and couldn't be bothered putting both up so I just put one up, man, and it was probably, you know, social distancing. It was six feet away from the vibraphone. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, I had it on cardioid pattern, uh, about six feet in front of the vibes. Uh, See, I, I thought that you were going to go with a um, with a closer setup, uh, but I realized that based on, well, I know how your apartment is, but, you know, based on the sound treatment in your apartment, uh, the sound situation in your apartment, and the the natural uh, characteristics of a vibraphone in general, I guess it it would make sense to have it further away. Oh, you cut out for a sec. Did you hear yeah, me? I'm back. I'm back. Okay. The uh, yeah. So I mean, like it's uh the as far as like your dog as your as your dog goes, are you running? Are you just running through GarageBand? That's it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I recorded all that stuff through GarageBand. I mean, I would have done it through Pro Tools, but um, stupidly enough, uh, Pro Tools, you're probably aware, Pro Tools switched to using this little USB device to, to hold the uh, the rights for the program on. Uh, what's it called? Wow, I did not know uh, that, actually. iLock 2 or something. Anyway, yeah. it, it holds, like, the licensing that you have so that you can... Basically, the the premise is so that you can take that little USB thing and go to Anywhere. any yeah any any device yeah. uh, that that has Pro Tools on it and and you can you can get right in there with your own licensing and so that's great. But being a little USB uh, device, I have no idea where the hell it's gone. So uh, until yeah. I get a new one of those, uh, I, Pro Tools uh, is no bueno for me. Um, well, I've been I've been using Logic for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And I just find it, I, I know the early, the early versions of Logic were not the best, but these recent versions along with Final Cut Pro, right. uh, Apple's really tried to step up their create, their creativity, uh, uh, applications. And I, I have no problems with it. The, uh, um, I, I, in fact, I love it. I just got a new MacBook, So finally I can run this thing and other programs yep. and have it be reliable as opposed to my 2012 MacBook that was just ready to explode, <laughs> explode every time I used it. Yeah. So, but you know, as far as, you know, the music tech thing goes and that bleeds into all the things that you do within music, which is. You're not only a performer, you're also an educator. You're also a music director of primarily musical theater productions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you compose, uh, you record. So, uh, first of all, I think I, I've always wanted to ask you this. Do you have a favorite route? Do you have something that you would much rather do than anything else? Um... You know what, man? I mean, I've never been particularly good with favorites in in any any scenario. I mean, like, you know, like the generic version of the favorites is, you know, what's your favorite band? Or what's your favorite song? What's your favorite yeah. book? Or what's your favorite whatever? And I never have the answer that people, I guess, are looking for or, or hoping that I'm going to say um, because I have, you know, I, I have a bunch of bands, a bunch of songs, and a bunch of books that are all my favorites, man. I, I, uh, I don't discriminate. Uh, 
But in terms of all the avenues, I mean, no, I, I don't, I don't necessarily have a, a defined or determined favorite amongst them all. Uh, but what I will say is that I, my focus will shift to one of those being a priority for a certain amount of time for various reasons. And, and it might be that it's just, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hip to, uh, at that, and, at that and time. Some of the, and some of the jobs require more time in general. Like your, your music, your music direction jobs are going to take more of your energy than anything else rather than, you know, Hey, I got a call for, you know, a gig. It's, you know, that's only one night. Right. Uh, I think, I think you have more, cause I've played for you uh in a in a gig that actually that Katie Jones was the lead of that show too uh legally blonde and you know you you have a certain um you have a certain expectation when, when it comes to your ensembles and your music direction yep. so obviously that's going to take more energy than your other avenues that you go down yep. uh cuz you started out uh, as a kid right you started acting on stage um, along with, you know, whatever musical endeavors you got into, right? That, you, you know what, that's funny, man. I, I we're going to take a stroll down memory lane and, <laughs> and I'm probably going to laugh my ass off. But, um, before I do that, no, I appreciate you saying that, man. Yeah. Uh, of course you, you played percussion for me in Legally Blonde and, and yeah, I, I always have an expectation for, for people that I contract, uh, you know, or play in an ensemble that I'm conducting or whatever it may be. Uh, and I, I hold a very high expectation of them, uh, those that I'm involved with, uh, along as myself. And the music directing thing, yeah, it's it's much more time-consuming and requires a lot more effort uh, over a longer period of time as well than than doing, you know, one-off gigs like, uh, like a really great... I, I always love doing these gigs. I do these uh, jazz quintet shows every so often with uh, a vocalist in town, Jonathan Carant, uh, and sometimes uh, Chadwick Johnson as well. And th yeah. those gigs are, uh, um, you know, set list the day of, the day before. Um, and you just roll up at the gig, you do the sound check, anything that you want to check out, you do. But most of the, most of the show is essentially sight reading. Um, and out of the probably... I think I've probably done about 10 shows uh, of Jonathan's over the past two years and uh, probably only twice or three times I've had a set list that's that's similar to another show. Most of the time it's all it's all brand new music and, and a lot of this stuff uh, has, has is arranged is has you know horn lines or, or ensemble figures or whatever it may be so you, it's not just like all right let's play uh, my favorite things in the key in this key and this tempo and let's do it uh, it's it's totally it's totally not like that uh, at all so I mean how different is that because you are you you have a jazz uh, you're, you're classically trained and you're and you're trained in jazz uh, as well. When when it comes to the jazz cats who are just solely jazz and they have all this standard knowledge and everything, um, I want to say that it's almost like when I because I'm primarily classically trained and I was a you know drum nerd so rudimental drumming was a big part of my background marching and all that kind of stuff, but looking at the jazz cats, 
they seem to have a relaxed approach to what would seem like complex music, right? Because you've immersed yourself in reading a lead sheet, in reading chord progressions, understanding how how uh, these standards work, um, what tempos they are and everything. Is it different to immerse yourself in these situations because you're well-versed in both, but... Is it how different is it? I mean, is it is it so drastically different that it's almost like you have to bring a different mindset to the gig, or do you kind of just approach everything the same way? Um, wow, that that's a great question. I hmm, I it, it, it hmm. Man, it's a that, it's a little bit of a brain twister because I think about that stuff a lot. That's so. a hell of a question. You know what? I think I mean every gig is is unique and and particular and a, a different uh, whether it's drastically different or it's or it's subtly different. Uh, every gig requires a slightly different mindset, uh, different preparation, all those kinds of things. But at heart. I think they're, they're all really similar. Um, you know, at the heart of things, music and arts and all that kind of stuff is is about story. You know, t- telling story. Um, a painting a painting tells a story just the same way as a, an instrumental track does. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, you know, as I said, it's about, about painting a story and, and, and communication. So, for example, when... I go and play, uh, you know, the, play vibes on one of these jazz quintet gigs. That that fifth chair in the band uh, is always rotating, so it's not always me that plays the gig. Sometimes it's it's uh, you know a trumpet player or a sax. Like sometimes it's uh, like uh, uh, Jorge Machine playing trumpet or. Um, I want I want to get Jorge on here. By the way, I'm going to talk to him about that. Yeah, man, he's 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 killer, man. Uh, yeah. or, or Charles McNeil playing alto, or, or someone. There's a, there's it's you know to keep it fresh. Uh, that chair is is always is always kind of uh, a revolving door in a way. But when I when I play that specifically that gig with Jonathan, I know that that chair is intended to be a um improvisory you're a horn player kind of thing and as a vibraphone player that's not always the context you put in a bit being a being a vibraphone player or a or a guitarist for that matter i mean vibes and guitar are so closely related in terms of their role in music uh for a lot of the stuff that i do that you know sometimes you play in the role of the harmonic uh, texture comping person and sometimes you play in the role of playing a lead line or some ensemble figures or, or an improvised solo or whatever so i i have to go into that gig with the mindset of i need to kind of be a chameleon in this situation you know i need to provide some accompaniment when when keys are taking a solo uh i need to you know improvise my own solos obviously uh and uh what I do, and I've been doing this more and more and more over the past several years, is is trying to take more of a compositional orchestration approach when I'm playing uh, playing that chair, uh, and I'm and, and I'm an accompaniment role. Um, so like the the keys will be comping and doing their own thing, but I'll choose to uh, try and do 
some accompaniment stuff that is more uh which is more reflective of if you're in a big band that'd be the horn lines a dude up but da yeah you know whatever it may be and then coming into you know playing keys on something then that's that's a different mindset as well um you know conducting something's a different mindset as well so they're they're different but they're the same as i said at heart man it's it's all about story um at the at the core of it all it is just relying on your musicianship mm -hmm. and your and your instincts and your ears to kind of not get you through the gig but make you successful um yeah i mean it's the same for uh you know as far as myself goes when it comes to switching like you know if i'm playing pop percussion or classical percussion or i'm playing drum set um i had to kind of learn that that different uh the fact that i i was learning all these different styles of music um i had to find that myself that 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 reliance on your musicianship yep at the core of it is really what it is i mean it's i can apply the same mindset in a drumline setting when I was playing a lot of drumline stuff uh, to where I'm playing a percussion chair in Legally Blonde or I'm playing, you know, drum set for a rock band. So right. uh, I find that that is what often separates people when I, when people are like, well, how do you do all these different things? It's like, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just music. That's it. And uh, which, you know, when as as far as someone in like in your case and kind of in my case, like we go to, you know, a new place where there's a network of musicians already and we just try to plug ourselves in. Uh, we both did it kind of through UNLV. Uh, and, and in my case, or well, in both of our cases now, we're, we're past uh, the point of being a student where you're, you're still involved with UNLV. You still do some music direction and some teaching. Uh, but I'm I'm transitioning into the sole professional side of things, and we both had to experience what it was like to be in a new place and to kind of rebuild our network. Um, but in your case, it's a little bit more extreme because you went from a 13-hour plane ride, you know, across the across the the world to a completely new place. How was that transition for you? It honestly, man, it, it was really rough to begin with. Um, we also have to, I was just thinking then we got to swing back around and talk about the, the trip down memory lane. Um, Oh yeah. That yeah we yeah. started and, and then skip. So we'll come back. We'll come back to that. Cause there's going to be some, some, some beautiful things in there that no one knows about. No one, man, not even the, not even just do it now not just e- do it not now even, we'll come back not even ex-girlfriends no man like like that's yeah. the level no 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 I'll, I'll come back I'll answer the question that you, that you got now um yeah so come, come on over here here's the thing man is the the reason why I moved here is um I I I was really really fortunate and I am really really fortunate um so when I was uh, 22, 23, 24, tw- uh, probably 22, 20, th- uh, anyway, in that period of time, right in there, um, wow, that was, I was, that was almost Robert De Niro from, uh, Analyze This then, uh, anyway, 
<laughs> right in that right in that period of time, I was playing pretty much the best gigs in in back in my hometown, Brisbane, Australia, it's a city of about two million people, uh, capital of that state. It's it's a it's a metropolitan city in Australia, one of one of like six or something, uh, 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 uh major cities. Anyway, I uh, at twenty two, twenty three, twenty four, I was playing almost all of the best gigs in town. Um, there was only one gig uh, that I wasn't playing, and it was the big touring productions uh, that were going through the major theater there. Um, because there was there was only one theater big enough to house these size productions, um, there was never any competition for musicians to play those big shows in that city be- because there was only one. Um, right. so I was playing everything else that was going into the, to the slightly small theaters or into the concert halls, um, you know, random headliner things, uh, you know, like Anthony Warlow, Faith Prince, Adina Menzel, those, those types of gigs. Um, and so I looked at myself, uh, at that point and I was like, you know, I'm very lucky to be where I am right now. However, how is my life going to change in the next 30 years if I'm already kind of at, at the top? Um, and so I was like, wow, you know, really the only, the only place to, to level up above here is to teach, uh, for the conservatory and to, to play these show gigs. And, and maybe in 30 years time, when, uh, when my good friends who do, do play those chairs decide that, you know, they're, they're, they're done with that life or, or whatever it may be, maybe then I'll be playing those chairs, but I'm like, you know what? I want to I, I, I want to do, do more than that. So uh, I, st- I first started considering moving to Melbourne in Australia, and that's a very typical move for, for musicians and, and music theatre performers in Australia to kind of get their qualification wherever and then move to Melbourne because Melbourne's kind of the cultural hub of the country. Um, but I was like, you know what? If I'm going to move, let's make it worthwhile. And so I started looking at the United States and looking at schools to do a, a DMA because I was interested in doing a DMA, but that was also the quickest and easiest way to get here as well. So it was it was kind of hitting multiple birds with yeah. one stone. Because uh, the international students have to deal with way more. Like for me, I was just hopped in a car and, you know, drove to Vegas and I was like, plot myself down. I'm like, all right, I'm in Vegas, but you have to deal with visas and a lot of paperwork and you have to deal with how am I going to be able to get paid and all that kind of yep. stuff. It's, it, you know what? I, it's funny. I had no idea what I was in for, uh, in relation to that stuff in it, the paperwork and the meetings and the conditions and you got to get this and you got to get this, but you can't get this before you get this. I'll explain that in a sec. Um, so anyway, I going to cut out a part of the story here. That's not particularly necessary. Uh, but anyway, I ended up accepting, uh, the, the offer for UNLV to do the DMA and knew 12 months ahead of time that I was, that I was going to move, uh, that I was going to move here and do the DMA. And I had to sit on it for about four months until I officially got the offer because I actually got the offer in the audition when I did the audition in, uh, in November of 2014. Uh, and then I didn't start my semester until the spring of 2016. Um, 
Oh, wow. So I, I, actually, I didn't know that part. Yeah, so I, I actually did. Uh, this is the reason why I did it. Man, there's so many side stories here. Um, <laughs> the reason I... The curious case of Dr. James White. Right. Um, <laughs> so the academic year in Australia being in the Southern Hemisphere uh, is the same as the calendar year. So school starts late January and it finishes either late November or early December. Um that's 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 the academic year so i would come to the states when i was still when i was living in australia and i was either teaching or i was doing uh, still at uni i would come to the states at the end of most years um to do whatever to you know it started out by taking lessons with with vibe players back in 2008-9 then 2010 it was to record an album um, then 2011, it was to, to launch the album 2012. It was, uh, to hang more and all that kind of stuff. 2000, so, 2014. Just, just aside, what, who were the, who were the, uh, jazz vibes that you studied with? Oh, wow. Um, okay. So hold a bookmarker on 2014 for my story. Um, yes. The vibes players that I had, so the the first time I, I came over to take lessons was 2008. It was the end of my first year of my Bachelor of Music, and I was frustrated as hell, man. I just wanted to be a killer jazz vibraphone player, and I didn't feel that I was getting what I wanted or needed uh, in my coursework back in Brisbane solely on the instrument. Uh, now, what what i am failing to mention here is that now i'm one of of a handful of people in australia that do the jazz vibe thing professionally like i, I like five like i'm one of like five people that do it professionally see that's unreal i feel like there's a niche community in percussion overall yep. and then your community is even even more niche i mean you we can name some monsters like stefan harris and yep. uh and nick mancini who i had the pleasure of meeting through you yep and and uh joe Locke, and but but then you you think about it and you're like okay well i mean yeah there's gary burton and and everything like that but overall your history of of the instrument and the jazz side of things is relatively like almost tiny you know what i'm saying yeah and yeah yeah it uh so so anyway i, I started special music i was the first person at that conservatory to have a concentration in jazz vibraphone um the guy i had teaching me uh bless his soul was uh, was a, a classical percussionist that was also interested in jazz vibraphone he, he kind of went to berkeley did a summer school um and and was was starting to to get some some street cred as a jazz vibraphone player in in brisbane so he he was the one teaching me in my first year and we just in terms of personality we just we just weren't we weren't matching personality wise and that's a huge it happens yeah that's a huge thing for me um you know nothing against him as, as a person or a player but we just did not gel man and it, and it it made the experience difficult for me because i came off the back of having a high school percussion teacher who was an absolute motherfucker and I deeply respected and still do to this day, man. I mean, I hold him accountable for my success. Like a large portion of my success is because of him. I, I really, truly believe that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so there's always that one teacher in our paths that have that impact on us. Like for me, it's for me, it's Lonnie uh, 
and McNeese yep. where, you know, just like pretty much tears you down and, and breaks you down and then, and then builds you back up in the right way. Yep. Almost. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think behind every great musician, there's a story of at least one, one teacher that was, that was the turning point, the changing point or the, you know, the person that, that built them up or whatever it is. And I've been really, I've right. been really fortunate, man, that throughout the majority of my, uh, my education, I've had what for me the best teachers that I could have, man, the absolute best, starting with high school. So anyway, yep. it, talking about best teachers, and and you actually named three of them before, man. I so I I was frustrated, and I went, you know what? I'm going to America to to learn from guys who actually play this thing professionally, full time. And, and they know what they're doing and there's a history of, of it and there's a culture and all that kind of stuff. So I, and hell, I, I can't even remember how I, how I did it, man. I look back at it now and go, wow, that was so bold of me to do this. But I, I did, this was my first time to America. I did six weeks, uh, six weeks across the country and let's see if I can name all the, all the, all the vibraphone players that I took lessons from. Um, starting off in New York, my man, Joe Locke. I know he's, uh, he's pretty important to you because you've mentioned him a lot. Man, Joe was super important and, and please let's come back to that because I want to give him some love. Um, yeah. So my man, Joe Locke, Christos Raffalides, who's a really great jazz vibes player in New York, uh, from Greece. Um, he was a, he was a student of Joe's at Manhattan School of Music. Um, Steph, the great Stefan Harris uh who's now the dean of 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 college at, at manhattan school of music i'm pretty sure um dan mccarthy who uh now is back living in canada uh but he was living in new york and he was great man he was a, a berkeley college music alum i can't remember exactly how i came across him how i met him um but i really loved those lessons i had with dan um and really love his his playing um and then from New York, I went up to Boston, uh, and I took lessons from uh, uh, Ed Sandin at Berkeley College of Music, and 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 the late Dave Samuels, um, which was which mm. was just magic, man. Like to to be in the presence of all of these players, um, particularly the ones that I'd idolized for such a long time. I mean, I, I my obsession with Dave Samuels was started when i was probably in ninth or tenth grade man listened to his uh, uh caribbean jazz project albums and 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 the double image stuff with dave friedman so it was it was so cool to to learn from from him and he gave me so much helpful advice and was such a sweetheart um what were these all separate trips or were these th uh often put together this was all in the same the same six-week trip to, to the United oh, wow. States. Yeah. Like I, I went in hard, man. Um, yeah. and this, the, what I've described so far is, is only, um, is only like the first two weeks, you know, uh, unreal. Then, uh, I think after that, the only other person I took uh, lessons with was Nick Mancini. And I took lessons with him in LA and his old place, uh, that was in the Hollywood Hills. Fuck that place, man. I, and he and I have had this conversation because he lived right on this corner 
in the in the Hollywood Hills, man. So it was a bitch to to get into the driveway and get out of the driveway. Um, but I took I took some lessons with him there. Uh, but I, I look back at that man. I was so blessed to have that because the the reason why I, why I set out on that journey to take all those lessons is that I was at a turning point. And I was like, do I really want to do this, man? Because I, I, I'm just, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, it's not happening for me. Maybe jazz vibraphone is not the thing I want to do. I just, I, I just don't seem to be making any, making any pro progress or the progress that I'd like to at least, uh, at, at this stage. So, uh, and that trip was huge, man. I mean, I, from all those lessons, I think, I think I ended up taking 13 lessons, uh, between all of those people, uh, wow. And for, and so how did you how did you like go about practicing between those? Oh, uh, or did you? So some of them, I just I I there was just no way to in in New York. Uh, in New York, I was able to. Uh, there's a place in New York on I think it's Forty Eighth Street called Machiko Studios. Um, and uh, they have a room in there with a with a Musser M fifty five. Uh, and I've used it many times on trips to New York um, to, to get in the shed. And, and so I used it a couple of times between lessons to work on stuff. But for the most part, man, it was... Uh, the trip was a little bit business and pleasure, man. I was still going like Disneyland, Disney World, shit like that. <laughs> um, so I wasn't able to shed the stuff as much as I would have liked to between lessons. But the way that... Uh, the way that it, it really fortunately worked out is, um, you know, I recorded all these lessons and when I came back to Australia after those 13 lessons, I basically had 13 months worth of stuff to work on. Um, oh, right. And yeah. it, it was really beautiful. And each person had something really unique and different to talk about. Um, and, and, all of which were, were great, man. It was like a non-linear education in a way where, you know, like Ed Sainan put me onto some of these really trippy um, existential harm harmonic concepts that feature in his now uh, complete improvisation series. Uh, and then I'd have, you know, Joe Locke and we'd be talking about some compositional stuff and uh, talking about like uh, what I call Locke-isms his 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 mm. kind of musical um his 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 musical gestures and uh i remember nick uh nick mancini i i remember it like it's yesterday man we're playing in his uh, playing in his apartment there in the hollywood hills and we were we were playing um black orpheus and he had me do this exercise where he's like okay uh for your solo you can only play two notes at a time and the rhythm can, can change. The pitches can be different, but you have to limit yourself to two, to two notes. Um, can they be unison? Hey, can, can they be, can they be together or do they have to be, uh, consecutive rhythmically? Mm, well, it, well, it's kind of up to you, but I mean, uh, from what I can recall at the time, it was, it was, you know, consecutively. So, uh, hang on, I got a keyboard here next to me. Um, so like, for example, the, the melody, that first statement, the sixth, yeah. 
So we just took that, or Nick took that as a jumping off point. It was like, okay, two notes, um, just, just build a solo on two notes. So it started off as like... You know, or, or whatever it may be. I mean, I'm sure I played really poorly at the time. <laughs> I mean, what what was the uh, what was the idea behind this exercise? The idea behind it was mostly to restrict yourself to the options. So, and and this is this is actually in part what part of my dissertation is about. Um, and and this is this is really why I did the dissertation that I did, man, is because I was that person. I was the classically trained percussionist who wanted to do jazz vibraphone but didn't know how to really get into it and it's really hard to get into speaking from my i mean from both of our angles obviously you're further down the road than i am but i've always had an interest in it but the the intimidation factor of jazz vibraphone is okay what happens if i if i break out into a solo and i just have no idea what i'm doing am i just playing around in the scale am i even following what the chord progression is uh, it's just so many factors to jazz vibraphone that makes us who are classically trained feel very, very intimidated. Exactly. And so that that's the kind of point of this, this exercise that Nick had me do is that the majority of people's uh, difficulty uh, beginning with improvisation is they have too much stuff to, to, right. to choose from. It's not that they don't know what to play. It's what they, they don't know what not to play kind of thing. Um, mm. and so what this, what this exercise forces you to do is it puts conditions and restrictions around what you're doing so that you're not so, uh, flooded with, with the notion of, you know, essentially I can play anything and, and I have limitless options, but I have so many options. I don't even know where to start. Um, so it kind of restricts that all down and goes, okay, do whatever you want, but two notes at a time. Um, and there's there's lots of exercise like Nick put me under that. Um, Dan McCarthy put me under some great exercises that I still use, man. And I even use them in my when I do master classes now. Uh, one of them and it features in my dissertation. Um, uh, it's we we refer to it as a running eighth note exercise. It's where you take uh, whatever tune you want, whatever chord progression you want, um, but you just play continuous eighth notes and the purpose of this exercise you're not trying to be hip and create really musical beautiful lines it's purely to for you to see where your gaps in knowledge might be for some of these chord progressions or, or chord chord sequences um you know maybe you you you're not super familiar about what what notes are in the chords over two five one into b major for example um yeah so so those were were really 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 useful at putting conditions and restrictions on on the situation to to kind of focus it a little bit more and so that's what my dissertation at heart is really about uh and that's why it has the title bridging the gap because it's it's taking someone like I used to be as a classical musician that was you know spent pretty much most of their time or all of their time learning really noty uh, you know marimba solos and vibraphone solos and and whatever it may be uh, and going okay well I can read music really well 
um, but I want to be able to improvise. So how do I kind of make that gap? My dissertation kind of walks through that, uh, as, as you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, man, I mean, I, I feel so, so, so blessed to, to have had, um, the vibraphone teachers and, and the, all of the teachers that I've had, um, in, in my lifetime. I mean, I, in, in a lot of cases I've, I've been able to get the knowledge straight from the source. Um, yeah. And you kind of took all these teachers' best qualities that's in their playing, and you just melded it into what is now your voice, mm. which is super important to establish. And for those listening, that uh, not literally his voice. I mean, like his 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 identity through the vibraphone is a result of you know all that money paid, all those miles traveled, and uh, all that time spent behind the instrument. Uh, from all these, like, fair to say, legends yeah. of jazz vibraphone. And the cool part about... This is the absolute coolest part about the music community to me. Is that I can sit here and I can fanboy about Vinny Caluta or Dave Weckl or Steve Gadd or, you know, pretty much anybody who I look up to as far as drumming or music goes. And I can go up to them at NAM or on the street or I can schedule a lesson with them and they can be the absolute coolest people that you've ever right. met. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't wind up that way uh, <laughs> with some, with some people um, as James and I experienced. Uh, but the, uh, that's what I love about, about the music community. If I have an aspiration to go start study with somebody and I message, message them on Instagram, like I have done before, and I'm just like, hey, I'd love to take a lesson with you. They are, most of the time, 99% of the time, they're the coolest people in the world and they're willing to share knowledge. Yeah, totally. And and actually, I just now uh, realized I, I, I forgot off a name and, and uh, of that list of players. The, the other guy that I took lessons from down in Philadelphia uh, is the, the ever so phenomenal uh, Mr. Tony Maselli, who is, yeah. is the, the coordinator of vibesworkshop.com something that is just has revolutionized a vibraphone playing specifically jazz vibraphone um across the world it has something like 1500 1600 members uh in involved in that group now uh and wow. and so many posts from tony and great players and there's posts from joe and from ed sandin and and whatever you know videos and lessons and tips and and interviews and all this kind of great shit um and and tony was really great man he he had a very different approach to all those other guys as well uh and and you're totally right man uh you know what i took bits and pieces from all of these players that that kind of manifested into how i play um and granted i think i i if there's one person that my playing is is most influenced by it it'd have to be joe and i said before let's please swing back around and and talk about joe and and show him some love because i I, that that guy has been an absolute um uh, invaluable treasure to me man he he uh he really took me under his wing from that first meeting in 2008 um and uh, as I said, I mean, ever since the first time I heard him heard him play, I think uh, the live at Seattle uh, album, him and him and Jeff Keys's group, uh, you uh, you recommended that album to me. Yeah, 
multiple times. Yeah. It's a killer album, man. And it's the li- this live set that they play, obviously, because it's called Live in Seattle. Um, but the, the compositions are great. The tunes are, uh, are, are just killing. You know, the solo, it's all, all really, really great. So anyway, I uh, met with met with Joe. I mean, I was able to get in contact with. This was actually beautiful. I, I want to share this. This was so so profound. He at the time, uh, the version of his website that he had, uh, you could only get in contact with him via his manager. I'm not sure if it's the same now, um, mm-hmm. because anytime I contact Joe, it's not through his website. Yeah, um, yeah. but. At the time, he the only way to contact him was via his manager, and it was it was uh, um, Tom Marcello, and it was like to you know Tom Tom at whatever his email address was. But anyway, I I contacted him and and kind of pled my case and was like, this is who I am. My first year jazz vibe from a major in Australia. I'm coming to the United States, and I'd really really love to take uh, a couple of lessons with Joe. Uh, would he be interested? Um, and uh tom replied and said you know i forwarded this through to joe uh we'll be in touch and then uh an amount of time passed and i get this email from joe that that was like yeah man you know let's do lessons and call me when you get to new york and we'll set up times whatever so when i eventually got to new york i called him um and we set up a time for a lesson i got there and he told me in the lesson man because we 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 vibed as the second that i stepped through the door at his apart his old apartment back in uh on crescent street in in uh in queens in new york and uh we vibed really hard from the from the first moment and he told me uh in that lesson he said man i don't know what it was but there was just something about your email that made me say yes. He said, I, I haven't taught a lesson in 10 years. Unreal. You know, it was 10 years or something what, like that. What's the reason behind that? Well, he, he was just focusing on playing, man. I mean, he he, playing, he, he yeah. was, for a long period of time, the vibraphone uh, jazz vibes teacher at Manhattan School of Music. And then he stepped down from that too, <laughs> um, you know, because he, he had a, a really hectic uh, performance and touring schedule and still maintains it. And that's when kind of Stefan Harris came in and, and took over teaching that role and Stefan ascended to being Dean. Uh, and Joe was now back at Manhattan School of Music teaching teaching some students. Oh, I didn't know which that. I'm, which I'm okay. really pleased to see, man, because he has so much knowledge um, that it's it would be a damn shame for it not to be shared with people still. Um, but anyway, I was so blown away by him saying that he's like, yeah, man, I haven't taught, you know, officially haven't taught lessons in, in like 10 years. Christos Raphaelides was his last student. And that's when he was doing, Christos was doing his masters at, 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 uh, uh, Manhattan school of music. And from then, man, we just, we just had such a great friendship and, and he became a great mentor. And I went back the following year and took lessons again, and then went back again in 2010, uh and uh recorded an album and and joe wrote the forward for that album um and then we just kind of maintained which album is that burbank my first album burbank you have burbank and hard mints i'm just gonna plug that thanks man i I appreciate that yeah and uh so yeah i did burbank recorded that in the end of 2010 released it in 2011 uh then in 2012 not a lot happened (laughs) um 
But when I came around to the end of 2014, I, I recorded, I did the sessions for uh, Hard Mints in the end of 2014, the same trip that I auditioned for my DMA uh, in. And uh, Joe, the sweetheart that he is, man, he gave me his instrument to record those sessions on. Um, and he came wow. and, yeah, he, that's huge, it, massively huge. And it was his brand new instrument too, man. He brand new Malateco. Who's he with? Malatech. Oh, Mal- Malatech. Yeah, his, yeah. his brand new Malatech Omega that he, that he'd had for, you know, not, not long, man. And he was, he was instrumental in the development of that instrument. Um, yeah. Malatech is, uh, owned, uh, or highly operated by uh, Lee Howard Stevens. Am correct. I wrong? You correct. Okay. So, um, yeah. so, yeah. He 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 said, you know what, man? You know, use my instrument and and uh, you know, I'll, I'll come to the studio with you uh, when you go in the first day, and I'll hang out a little bit. And uh, and he did, man. He came. We set up the instrument. Uh, he hung out a little bit, and and it was really great for both of us, man, because it was it was it, it was such a sweetheart uh, gesture of him to do this. I mean, I I don't know anyone else who who would have done this, man, and and they're probably out there, but but uh, he did that. But some of the guys that were on the session with me, um, you know. Monster, Monster players. players, man. Richie Goods on bass and Jonathan Kreisberg on guitar, John Weekend on on drums, um, uh, Jeff Keezer on piano, uh, and ah, uh, um, oh, forgive me, dude. Uh, Adrian Cunningham on on sax. Adrian, I've known Adrian for years, man. He's Australian, um, so yeah. that that one hurt. You guys got a band, yeah. Together. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so so Locke actually had bands and and had played with a lot with the guys in my session, man. So he was there to hang out and hang with those guys and hang with me, and you know, and, and so it was really nice, man. It was it was so nice to do those sessions. It, it was kind of like I was doing those sessions with his blessing in a, in a way, man, because he was there. His instrument was the one I was playing on. I was playing with guys that he has played has had bands with and 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 toured with and all this kind of stuff so it it was really beautiful man and 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 he as i said he's been so instrumental in in my development has been such a great friend and mentor and 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 teacher man and 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 uh i i i owe pretty much everything jazz vibraphone wise to him um anything that's left over can be split up to everyone else yeah but joe joe was was really the the pinnacle figure in the jazz vibe stuff for me man and 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 has always shown me love and support in my other areas too man i mean he'll drop me a line every so often be like man i see you know you're doing the show you're doing this teaching gig or you know you just did this clinic or whatever good for you man um and and so it's 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 really beautiful um the uh i mean and then you watched your I mean, based on his generosity, you kind of you you kind of watched yourself go from being this aspiring jazz vibraphonist to being identified as yeah. one. Which, when you hear somebody identify you as a jazz vibraphonist, like myself, like I identified you one as one as at the beginning of this podcast, mm-hmm. does that still resonate with you at at the fact that you that are you honored by that fact or are you still weirded out by it? It's, it's funny, man. This comes back to the whole favorites thing as well, because, uh, I, 
I both love and hate being identified as as a jazz vibraphone player, and it's purely the context. Um, the context of I love being identified as a jazz vibraphone player because I am, man. I mean, that's what my training was in. That's what one of yeah. my what one of my specializations is, and and how I'm identified in the community. And it's a great identifier because it's so nichey, man. Um, uh-huh. But on the opposite end of things, uh, I hate being identified as only a jazz vibraphone player because that was my life when i was you know when i when i was living back in australia is i'd get overlooked for symphony gigs and and other things that were more on the classical side of thing or the orchestral side of things because people saw me as only a jazz vibraphone player but that right. wasn't that wasn't the case, man. I mean, I, I even through that time, I kept up my education in in all percussion. Um, and as I said, through high school, the focus was being an all all round percussionist. You know, doing drum set and and auxiliary stuff, pop percussion, orchestral percussion, temps, whatever it may be. Um, Which you know, you and I share the same mindset when it comes to that because the the versatility factor of what we do is extremely important to myself and you based on the fact that is if we get the call for a gig, we don't want to say no right. is essentially the mindset behind that. And the, the desire to be a well-rounded percussionist should lie in the multiple areas of percussion. We have such a vast variety of things we have to work mm-hmm. on that you want to be nothing but proficient at all of them and to be able to get that call like, Hey, this gig plays timpani, but also you're going to jump to the other side of the room and playing a, playing a jazz trio. And you're like, uh, okay. And then, you know, and then it's like, okay, yeah, fine. Well, I can do Man, that. Man, I, I look forward to the day that I get a call for that gig playing temps, playing exactly. temps <laughs> and then on the other side of the room playing jazz trio. Fuck yeah, that, man. That's the extreme that obviously, but you know, I've I've played gigs that involve West African drumming, yeah. or they involve, you know, playing drum set and steel band, but then playing lead pan as yeah. well. So it, it's so. I I think we that often gets overlooked when you talk about a percussionist. It's like, depending on the route they take, like if you're if you decide to take one route in percussion, that's fine. If you want to be a drum set player for you know, a metal band, then you're going to do that. And there's a lot of people who don't care about the other stuff that we do. And that's fine because a lot of it is based on what percussion education, the state of percussion education is Mm -hmm. now. And, uh, which is a lot of, you know, we use the marimba as a musical base, which is fine. Um, that, that could use some reform. I think now that I've been on the other side of things, but it's just what it is, and it, you can't really... I used to get frustrated at the fact that people were like, okay, well, what is marimba going to do for you? What is uh, practicing classical snare drum going to do for you, or, or orchestral snare drum? It's like, well, I think the mindset depends on, like, okay, I have to do it, so why waste the time? How, how am I going to pull all the information and development out of this style of playing mm-hmm. as I can, which is... Uh, I think I, I don't think you would deny that that training led to your success on the vibraphone. Totally, man. It's it's you know to just go back a sec there and and address um, 
the the concept of of when the phone rings i mean it, <laughs> with today man it's not so much phone calls now it's more emails and text messages unfortunately but yeah. uh anyway when that when that inquiry let's call it comes out you know i got this gig yeah. and it's you know it's playing whatever conglomerate of instruments um you want to be able to say yes to it man and and that's that's what's so unique about being a percussionist is uh unlike if you're for example a trumpet player a trumpet player generally the majority of their career or, or all of their career is going to be playing trumpet uh, and yeah, maybe they'll play B flat trumpet or C trumpet or piccolo trumpet or whatever, but it's all a trumpet pretty much. I mean, the right. embouchure differs slightly, blah, 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 blah. The two fingerings, yeah, stuff all, like all that, that kind of yeah. stuff is slightly different, but it's all a trumpet for percussion. It's you have to learn the whole family, man. It, it, it would be like being that trumpet player, but you have to be equally as proficient on all those trumpets, trombone, euphonium, tuba. Etc. French horn, etc. 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 Man, you you got to be killer on all of these things, and that's what it's like to be a percussionist. You got to play drum set. You got to play marimba, vibraphone, xylophone, snare drum, all the all the accessory yep. stuff, cymbals, bass drum. You know, castanets, triangle, tambourine, blah 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 blah. Pop percussion, congas, wall percussion, blah blah blah. Whatever it is, man, you got you got to play all of this stuff, different stuff to a high level, and that's how you keep that's how you maintain success or that's how a lot of us maintain success and and uh keep the gig calendar rolling man because uh you know a a, a regular month for me is there's no such thing man a, a regular my my gigging my gigging no. schedule is there's nothing regular about it man one month i could be playing you know a week attempts and then the next week you know it's a jazz gig and then whatever or the month could be his four weeks of a musical. That's the yep. month, man. You know, so yeah, and and but that and at the same time, that's why I kind of love what yep. we do. It it keeps things really like mixed up. I mean, I went from I think in three weeks, four weeks, uh, in my first year at UNLV, I started out. Uh, we started doing rehearsals for Legally Blonde. Uh, I'm sorry. We did the black box mm -hmm. concert, then we did, then we did wind orchestra recording, and then we went straight into Legally Blonde. And amidst all that, I did an Easter gig where I'm playing in a fake drumline uh, at New York New York Casino, and that that was just a taste of what the poti the potential is like, especially in a city like Vegas, where it's 100% entertainment. Yeah. And it's like, man, I really enjoy this because it's so unique and it's so different and it's. It kind of keeps things fresh. Yeah, totally, man. And and you know what? I I we need to come back around and talk about some of the weird gigs that we've done. The, oh, the, the weirdest that city we, that I've ever dude, encountered. It, I love this city so much, man. It's just some <laughs> of the. I grew to love it. I grew to love yeah, it a lot. I mean, just some of the strangest gigs I've ever played have been here, man. And 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 uh, let let's definitely talk about that. But it seems like the theme of this podcast is, oh yeah, that's awesome. Let's talk about that in a second. Yeah. So with yeah, that in yeah, mind, yeah. because this actually ties into the percussion thing of of being, you know, having versatility and flexibility and playing all this different stuff. And I think this is ultimately how I led to to playing percussion. Um, this all kind of ties together. What what? Watch the magic of this tie together, man. So, um, I I do all the different things I do because 
because I find satisfaction enjoying it because it keeps me on my toes and it keeps things fresh and different. And I love that about all the things that I do, man. I love that, you know, as I said just before, I mean, this like one month could be purely just, just working a show, you know, and I could be playing a keyboard yes. book or it could be playing a, a, a percussion book or, 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 or vocal directing or whatever it may be. And then the next month I could be playing a bunch of jazz vibe stuff, you know, be playing some timpani or, you know, some orchestra gigs or whatever. Then the next month I'll be playing some random thing in the Aria ballroom or the Mandalay Bay ballroom or whatever it is. Um, and yeah. and then the next month, man, I'll, I'll be you know composing this big symphonic thing or or working arrangements and orchestrations for something, whatever it may be. So I I like all that versatility, and I think I was led to that, unbeknownst to me. Uh, I was I've been I've been leading to that my entire life. So you mentioned his. Now we're going to attack what what you what you said like forty five minutes ago. Um. So. It's funny. I actually did, or did I? I didn't start out with acting, man. I didn't. Um, but but it's oh. it's close. It's very close. You're very close. So this is this is a bunch of stuff that I've never really told anyone because I've never felt it was worth a shit. <laughs> but but I'm, here Fair it enough. comes now, man. It's all all you know. Live and unplugged. Yeah, uh, rudimental podcast. Exclusive. Yeah, here we go, man. It's all coming out, man. The confession. <laughs> um, so the first instrument I played or, or took lessons in was guitar when I was like eight years old. And the reason I did okay. that is my sister was taking jazz trombone lessons from this guy who played trombone, played piano and played guitar and whatever. And so I think it was just a thing of like, oh, this dude also plays guitar and me being eight years old, I was like, yeah, I want to play guitar. And, uh, so mum bought me this little, like, half-size guitar. I was eight years old, man. Yeah. I, I had no idea what was going on. I had, I had, I had no <laughs> idea why I was being told to put my hand in this position. I had no idea what, what a D chord meant. It, none of it made any sense in my brain. Like, it was, it was great educating on his part, man, but... I was just like, I don't understand why I'm, why I'm doing any of this stuff. I'm, I'm purely, it, yeah. I, it, I felt like I was a robot, man. I was like, you know, do this and it'll do this. Okay, great. So I was like the middleman, you know? Um, <laughs> so I did that and I, I took maybe like two lessons and then gave it away, man. Cause I, it's like, I, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it, man. And so that was, that was that. So I was about eight years old. Uh, so I would have been like with the second or third grade or something like that. Then I moved schools, uh, and I took up again because, because of my sister, man, she, she was playing trombone and the same lower brass teacher that she had at her school was also a sessional brass teacher at my school. Um, at this point, I'll make the disclaimer that uh, music programs in Australia do not work the same way that music programs in the United States do. For those, yeah, for, for say, those yeah. that are like, uh, "What do you mean a sessional uh, music?" T anyway, if you want me to explain that, I'll explain it later. Um, but anyway, it was the same teacher teaching at both schools, and uh, she was like, "Hey, man, this guy, his his main thing is is tuba, and uh, you know, if you if you learn tuba." you're never going to be shy of 
being wanted in an ensemble, man. I mean, that band program is going to want you to play in all their concert ensembles. And I was like, great, man, let's play the two. I had no idea what a tuba was. So anyway, <laughs> I started learning tuba, man. And I, I, I started when I was in grade four. So I was like nine years old, something like that. Um, and I could yeah. fit in the case, man. I could fit in the case at that, at that age. The instrument was the same yeah. size as me. Uh, before they made, before y'all probably didn't have the student size ones that were, you know, that are, uh, like well, half you know, what's funny, man, is I think I, I mean, technically the student size tubers are the, are the B flat, uh, tubers. The kind of concert ones are either E flat or C or some people have a, have a double B flat. Um, a, a B flat to that's what I had, man. I had a B flat tuba and it, it was, I guess, technically a student sized instrument, but I was, I was <laughs> nine years old, man. I mean, it, yeah, it's tiny, a student yeah. sized instrument for someone who's 15 years old. Um, right. Cause well, that makes sense because America doesn't start that level of instrumental education until sixth grade. Right. Usually. And so anyway, yeah. I, I started doing tuba and was really digging it and loved the teacher and all that kind of stuff. Um, and at the same time, here's where the acting debut comes in. And I've never acknowledged this. Um, but, but I actually, no, that's not true. I acknowledged this about three or four months ago when I was working on something, when I get, when I get to it, I'll tell you. So the, uh, the school that I went to for this period of time, it was a, it was a really kind of elite private school that I hated attending. And because of that, I'm not going to mention their name. But um, I really disliked going. It was all boys, you know, really religious school. Um, I'm kind of giving it away now. Uh, but but yeah. anyway, they in their in what is here elementary school in their in their what they would call preparatory school prep school. Oh man, so pretentious. Um, it <laughs> they they would put on these these plays, and they weren't. They were like weird, weird conglomerate plays of random stuff. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, uh, Legally Blonde Junior or something, you know, legitimate. Uh, yeah. Legitimate. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> the what it, when I was there, fourth grade, my first year there, they did a play, and this was probably the only one they did that I knew of in, in the time. They did... Uh, one of the revisions of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And I play, and to involve the entire prep school, keep in mind, man, the, the entire prep school was probably 300 kids or something. So, and that's that's the main the main thing with these uh, these plays is that they want to involve the entire the entire school somehow. So anyway, I yeah. ended up being an ogre playing like I was in one scene, man. And I was playing an ogre with a battle axe uh, that just had to die, essentially in the same man. No dialogue. You were yeah, Shrek. Yeah, man. No dialogue. No nothing. I just, I just had. I was an ogre with with a battle axe, and uh, you know, got killed by the good side. You know, um, that was that was my debut in in acting. Man, I wasn't acting. I was on the stage going, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> and uh and then uh the if it wasn't the following no they did it every two years so then when i was in uh sixth grade they did uh roald dahl's fractured fairy tales it's basically like fairy tales but they got a weird weird twist on them they're like gross and whatever um and 
the 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 uh the sequence that i was in was uh little red riding hood now i don't know if this is actually what the book is or if this was made up or what was going on man but it was it was a sequence with little red riding hood but for whatever reason uh gianni versace was was yeah what? <laughs> gianni versace was in it man and and uh and I was Gianni Versace, man. I, oh I was God. this. I was this designer that was making a coat for Grandma or so. I can't even remember it. But I had a bunch of dial. Oh no, that was that was the third time. I'm missing the second time, man. The second time they did do a play every year. So grade four was was the ogre thing and me going, what the fuck is going on? And then the next year, the fifth grade. Uh, I don't know what they did, but I was one of the seven dwarves for whatever reason. Oh, okay. And um, I was uh, I was Sneezy the dwarf man, and uh, <laughs> this was this was so dumb. I remember I I got chickenpox um like two or three weeks or something before the performances, like two weeks before the performances, wow. and I was out for a week. And when I came back. I guess they thought they were being clever or whatever, but they 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 wrote this line into the show, Sneezy's back from the chicken pox. And to this day, man, I still don't understand why they did that. I yeah, what, no, what, not... why why? Was that was that was that to cover if I didn't do a good job of the role because I wasn't at a week of rehearsals for the chicken pox? Don't worry everyone, he yeah, had yeah, chicken pox. Forgive him, man, he had chicken pox. <laughs> <laughs> So it was that, and then uh, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm picturing I'm picturing you as that compared to what I just saw you as, which was Sweeney Todd, the lead oh, of Sweeney man. Todd, yeah. and it's like the total opposite end of the Absolutely, spectrum. man, absolutely. And uh, so I did that, and then as I mentioned before, on grade six, I played Gianni Versace in this fractured fairy tale, <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood. What kind of school? Yeah, did you that's go right, to? man. I, I've got a lot of questions now. Um, yeah, but uh, so. Yeah, I mean that that was the beginning of the acting stuff for me, and then I didn't do acting for a long time after that. I mean, I did, uh, I I wasn't in shows on stage uh, for a long time following yeah. that. I mean, I did drama all through school or theater all through school, um, but I did it as it was weird, man. I maybe I thought I was too cool to enjoy it or something, but I did it. And I liked it, but I pretended like I didn't like it. I, I don't know what my deal was, man. Angsty teenager, uh, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, whatever, whatever man. But I also had moved schools at that point as well. Um, and and when yeah. I moved schools was when I kind of gave away playing Lowell Brass and started playing percussion. Um, and uh, and and that, that, like, move into that school, uh, which I feel comfortable to name, Cannon Hill Anglican College, I'm very thankful... Uh, for them and the education I got there and the experience I got at that period of time when I was there. Um, and, uh, you know, I had the, the best percussion teacher that I could have hoped for, best drum set teacher I could have hoped for, um, great music program, great academics, you know, good... S- Man, some, that's lucky because, like, across the whole world, that doesn't happen often. Like, a, a lot of times, kids don't have a choice. Right, right. And so I was real yeah. lucky, man. I mean, this, this was a beautiful school that I went to. It was, funnily enough, it was... So, so the previous school I was at that did all these p- weird plays, super elite private school, all boys. 
and then I moved to this new school that was kind of like, at the time, it was kind of like a middle-class, upper-middle-class co-educational school. So, so boys and girls, which I dug, man. I mean, I was like, sweet, I'm around, uh, I'm around yeah. the women, man. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And, no more plaid jackets yeah, over that's here. That's it. That's <laughs> it. And uh, and and I loved it, man. I mean, I loved, I loved not having to be under the pressure of this elitism. Um, you know, you could feel that at that young totally, age, totally, dude, totally. Yeah. Because uh, you know, this this elite school that I went to, man. It, I at that age lived in terror because right. this was the situation, man. They they had between when when classes finished and started. Oh man, this is so memory lane, man. So yeah, class yeah. would finish, there'd be a bell that would ring, and then there would be five minutes for you to get from that class to the next class. When the next bell rang five yeah. minutes later, your ass better be in that seat in the next classroom, man. And if you weren't, if you were still walking around campus, there was there was one particular guy. He was called the school marshal scary dude man ex-military um he he would he would hunt you down man and give you like friday afternoon or saturday detentions and shit purely exactly purely for being late to class because you weren't walking fast enough on this campus now keeping in mind elite rich school this campus was huge dude huge there was there unless that there was absolutely no way for you to at a regular walking pace get across that campus in 5 minutes never never yeah. you could never do it man if you knew you had a class that was on the other side of campus you would run and even running you'd barely make it Be- yeah cuz well my high school was like that like huge it was it's the 14th largest high school in texas wow. which is yeah, that's saying a lot, a lot. We, I mean, we had 4,000 people on one campus, and that was just 10th through 12th grade. We had a freshman campus that was on yeah. its own, and and it just insanity, but continue. And uh, so anyway, man, and I just I just didn't like this school, man. It was it was really elite. They were, they were really forcing the religion. I, I got nothing against religion, really, uh, but it, it's, just, it's just not my thing. It, it, it's just yeah. it's just not my thing, man. And I've worked in I've worked in plenty of really religious places you know programs or schools and whatever and i'll happily abide by the belief system and whatever for the job or whatever but personally it, it's not my cup of tea uh quite frankly but i you know more power right. to those that do it man um but anyway so yeah i just i didn't like this school man i really didn't like it and uh that was manifesting real hard and and man he, he all right here he comes some stuff that has never come out um, the confession continues. Um, so <laughs> this school did a thing. I mean, the more details I give anyone from, from, from Brisbane that listens to this is going to pick it up straight away, but oh well, um, uh, this school invested in this program for their, uh, year eight, nine and 10 students where they bought a campus in a country town three hours away and, they they'd use it as a camp right and it was basically a experienced school away from school 
Yeah, it, oh. it was it was a strange concept. So in in no, it started in seventh grade. So seventh grade you went for a week. Eighth grade you went for three weeks. Ninth grade you went for like six weeks, and then tenth grade you could go for like a whole term. You know, like ten weeks. Mm. Um, country town, absolutely nothing to do. You're a kid who is under high <coughs> levels of supervision, being part of a you know elite school. They didn't let you do anything that wasn't on the schedule, man. And so oh, yeah. anyway, when I when I was at this camp, I uh I I hated it, man. I hated this camp. And at this camp, we were one of the first classes to be at this to be at this campus. And what they were doing, um man, this is scandalous, but fuck it. Um, they were getting the students to create and execute projects around the campus. In the ways of building a walkway, building a a, a a oh to like build to like build character yeah, and teamwork, and build stuff a like garden, that. you know, replace windows, blah 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 blah. You know, this is very similar to an episode of The Crown okay. on Netflix when they they refer to uh, the royal family has a very prestigious like uh, I guess tie to these. Uh, specific academies mm-hmm. i think like all boys academies and they were talking about uh the the duke of edinburgh uh prince philip and the school that he went to that he essentially it was like going off to college almost right. like but it was in like this country town of scotland and they talk about how like when he first got there the the job was to build the gate to get to the facility and oh man, I wish I could remember. It's like, it's a certain prestigious academy. But anyway, it's very similar to that. It's like, a, it was like a, they had a dean of the school who essentially was in charge of the whole thing. And that they would make these kids like do these hard labor, like, like real jobs that you would hire contractors right. for. Right. That, that, that's exactly what was going on, man. They, that, That's yeah, crazy. It, it was it was disguised under this thing of yeah team building and and whatever and life skills and whatever bullshit they want whatever buzzword bullshit they wanted to spit out, but really I saw it for what it was, man. It was we are using children to to build this shit for free, um, but not even yeah we are getting paid and these students parents are paying to have these students basically build this campus man that's what it was and every every class that went to that camp they had they had it worked down to a fine knit program man where it was basically you know like for example year seven would come in for one week and then they'd leave on the friday the following monday man then the the eighth graders would come in for three weeks so this shit was continuously rolling uh of the of them building this campus and and i tried to I being however old I was, 12, 13, 12, uh, 11, 12, whatever it was. Um, I remember calling my parents, man. I was like, I want to come home. This is ridiculous. Like they are making us build mm-hmm. stuff. I hate being here. Um, I, I just, I, I want to come back, man. This, you know, basically something's up, but I couldn't articulate it in, in anything other than, oh, I want to come home, man. I was a blubbering mess, man. I just wanted to come home and, and back into my comfort zone and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and right. I hated doing it and no one would listen to me. I mean, I mean, my parents did 
my parents did the right thing, man. They were like, no, just, you know, tough it out. It's all going to be fine. You know, tough it out. You'll yeah. be back soon. It'll, you know, it'll fly by. It'll be sweet. You know, don't rattle any cages. They, they were, they were trying to do the right thing by everyone, man. Uh, and I remember my mum said, you know, well, if, if, if you go and talk to the, the guy that's running the joint, you know, and tell him that you're not, that you're not feeling, you're not feeling great and, and whatever. And I, I don't know what my mum was hoping to, to do by that, uh, by suggesting I do that. Uh, and definitely what I ended up doing was not what she was hoping I would do. Yeah. But I, I remember, man, yeah. I marched up to that guy's office. This was of an, this was in the evening, man. So the, the days, you know, sweatshop had finished. <laughs> Ooh, might have Jeez. to edit that one out. Um, had finished. Never. You know, dinner had taken place. And uh, it was the evening to basically do whatever you wanted within your dormitories situation. Yeah. And I went up I went up to see the, the dude that was running the camp. He'd gone home, man. And his little second in charge was around. His second in charge was a real douche. Um, and I said, mm. I explained to this dude, I was like, man, I just, I want to go home. Please send me home. Um, I'm just, I'm really not digging it here. And he, I remember, man, he, he said some kind of smarmy, smart aleck comment uh, to me and and I man I had I had some cojones on me at this time I I said look man if you don't let me go home I will leave and his words to me exactly I remember man I can picture I can picture his stupid face he said go ahead he challenged me man he Ooh. fucking challenged an a 11 year old kid I mean, of course, in his head, he was like, there's no way this 11-year-old kid is going to try and escape and make it three hours back to Brisbane by car. <laughs> so, man, I marched back to my dorm. I put all the shit in my bag. I walked out. I walked out the front door. I didn't even sneak out, man. I walked out the front door. Jump. This is movie-worthy, totally. by the way. Called a cab. Jumped the fence. The cab pulled up picked me up and then credit to the cabbie mate because i jumped in the car and he's like where do you want to go and i said brisbane man that would that would that would be the equivalent of getting in a taxi right three hours right. please that would be the equivalent of getting in a, in a cab here in vegas and saying los angeles please you're like, like oh my god the cab yeah like, get, get the fuck out. out man take a plane um yeah so credit to this cabbie he was like uh okay and he said he said to me in a, in the car, "Oh, we'll have to take you to um to the depot because we don't do like things of that distance. You'll have to transfer into something else." What he was doing was taking me to the depot, calling the school, and being like, "Dude, I think you got a kid that's escaped," <laughs> and that's what yeah. happened, man. Then they took me back to the school. I got absolutely reamed by the guy that that ran the school, and I said to him, "He was this this guy who ran the school was like." what makes you think that you could just jump the fence and leave? And I said, your second in charge did, man. He taught, I said to him, if you don't let me go home, I will leave. And he said, go ahead. And man, the, the, you could cut the tension with a knife because then this dude was all backpedaling. No, I never said that. I would never say that, you know, trying to save himself, whatever. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, then my parents came up like the next day and, and picked me up and man, Man, my dad was pissed at me. He was, he oh, was I'm so sure. pissed, man. So pissed. 
anyway i got taken home and it was it basically ended up being like my parents went in had had meetings with the like the headmaster of the school and whatever um to which they were like uh you have a problem child and if you can't keep him under control <laughs> he will be addicted yeah to yeah one that's day. it you have a problem child and uh we don't really like problem children so what are you going to do about it kind of thing anyway um and my mum took that as an opportunity to move me to a different school. I don't think my dad wanted me to move to a different school because my dad went to that school, my brother went to that school, um, and so it was kind of like a heritage thing, I guess, uh, for him. But well, that that's interesting. Do you think that's a culture thing with with other countries? Because that that doesn't really mean a ton here. Uh, my parents went to a different. Like for one thing, the school system is totally right. different. Uh, we have boarding schools and stuff. That's like what the that, school but, was, man. It was a boarding school. Yeah, but but like I, but I I've never known anyone to go to a boarding school. It's it's just like a different a different uh, mindset, I guess, because I I don't know if that's taken from like British culture because y'all were once, you know, heavily governed by the British government or yeah. something like that, or British people moved there back in the day you know what i i I think it is man i I think it is a british thing i mean don't don't quote me on this anyone but it it seems like it would make sense to be a british thing i mean look at england it's you know there'd be so many people that live out in in country land and whatever and they get sent into london or manchester or, or wherever um to to go to school and they're 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 you know they're they're boarding at at the school man because they're from the country yeah um, yeah, that's what this school was. That was a big thing for this school, man. They had 16 houses, uh, it, like sporting team, divide, how to divide the students in the school. Um, you know, so that when you do like into like when you do, uh, uh, school sporting activity, swimming or whatever, that's how they divide. You know what I'm talking about? It, yeah. yeah. They had yeah, yeah. 16 yeah. houses. Um, and like six or seven or eight of those were, were strictly boarding houses um, that were filled, filled completely wow. with borders, man. Um, but anyway, uh, where, where was I at? So anyway, my, my mom, uh, my mom took the reins and, and moved me to a different school. And she, uh, asked a, a bunch of my brother and sisters. Okay. So my brother, my sister, and I used to do competitive swimming when we were kids and we were all actually pretty good. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Like I believe my in her prime, my sister even uh, made a qualifying time for the Olympics in in something. Um, wow! But uh, anyway, yeah, we we all swam competitively for for a club called Morningside Flyers, and a huge portion of the senior squad in that club, so like the the fourteen through seventeen year old, eighteen year olds, whatever, um, were went to this went to Cannon Hill Anglican College, and so my mom reached out to a bunch of those families and was like, okay, well, what do you guys think of Cannon Hill? And they're like, yeah, we think it's great. Well, whatever. So she sent me there. And I, I will admit, man, I've got to be honest here. I've, I, I went to that first week of that school kicking and screaming. I did not want to go. And it was purely a like, well, I've left all my friends behind at this other school and blah, blah, whatever. And what I wasn't acknowledging were the things that I hated about that school that led me to do what I did. Um, that put me on the turn yeah. of events to 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 move to a different school, and man, well, I mean, oftentimes like we we don't accept change just purely off of off of like 
the the factor of like starting right. over is pretty annoying. It, I find it annoying to be honest with you. It, it it's very like it's like okay, I know change is an, is inevitable when when your whole world is completely flipped upside down. Like even in 2018, when when my world was flipped upside down uh, in multiple areas, uh, I found it. I find change um, necessary, but also it can be really a pain in like your side. Oh, like, totally, sure. man, totally. And and as I said, I mean, I I went to this for particularly the first day or two went kicking and screaming to this new school man. I was just like, I do not want to be here. You know, I don't have any friends here. But that that all changed fairly quickly, man. And and as I said, I I'm so happy that I ended up going to that school. I'm so happy that that I mean, I I perhaps could have bowed out of the other school a little more gracefully than I did. Um, but in the end, man, I was so happy that I did do that because it sent me to the school that I finally at, at, at Cannon Hill, man, I actually loved going to school uh, after that initial, you know, adjustment period. I genuinely loved going to school and I never took from, 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 you know, from that year onwards, I never took a sick day just because I didn't want to go to school ever again you know mm-hmm. whereas at the old school man i was faking being sick regularly because i just yeah. didn't want to go to school man i was you know wake up in the morning i do not want to go to this place and would be like no i'm sick i can't go whatever but then when i went to cannon hill it's like even if i was sick man this is probably bad bad form to be talking about this with the current pandemic but but even oh, when God. I was sick, man, I still went to school because I loved it so much. I mean, I loved the yeah. subjects that I was doing. I loved the people I was around, the teachers I had, uh, and of course the music program, which was the nucle- the nucleus of 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 my life. Um, and I, as 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 right. for me, as and well. and it got yeah. to a point there, man, where I had something music related every day. If it, you know, if it was a class or an ensemble or a lesson or whatever it was, I had music every day. So for me to take a day off school meant that I missed that rehearsal or missed that lesson or or missed that class that I loved so so much. And uh, so that that was that was such a huge 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 turning point for me. Um, but then again, I had this weird thing where I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I took drama and and I liked it, but I pretended like I didn't like it. I still. Don't know why I did that, man. I I really wish I just. Well, I think it's a I think it's a teenage thing, like a mindset of like, I don't know what your your, you, I guess, cultural teenage uh reputation of what theater or drama was, but for us it was like okay, I mean theater's kind of like, it's it's lame. It's but in in reality that everybody was afraid to put themselves out there yeah. on stage. And that that's what, yeah, that's In what that it was, way. man. I mean, it's really confronting to do that stuff. And, and, and actually now that I think back on it, I even remember the first, the first like year that I started playing in the school, big band, playing vibrant school, big band. And the first, the first solo I, I ever, uh, or the first tune that we played that I had a solo in, 
and we we played it all that for that entire year man we always played this piece uh i remember man i'd i'd play this solo had no idea what the hell i was doing and afterwards was just like felt ashamed of myself yeah. after playing yeah. man and it is it's really confronting because you are putting yourself out there um and so maybe that's yeah. what it was with the drama thing or, or maybe i was just trying to look cool in front of the ladies or i don't know what it was man but I, I really wish I took it more seriously. And I really just, I focused on the music side of things at school. And it wasn't until after I finished school and I was doing my undergraduate. Uh, and it was, it was even after that. It wasn't until my sister started a theater company uh, in 2000 and late 2009, coming in 2010. They put on their first show in 2010, which I wasn't involved in. Uh, but I got involved in 2011 and I, that's that a couple things started there. That's when I started, uh, started doing some sort of music direction work. I was her assistant on pretty much every show she did from 2011 through 2012, uh, in, in some capacity, whether it was, you know, doing rehearsals or, or whatever it may be. Um, and was playing in the orchestra, either playing the drum set book, playing the percussion book. And then uh, on a couple of the shows, did random, we, we referred to it as a cameo thing, but how is it a cameo if I'm a nobody? <laughs> but but I, I <laughs> yeah, it's I kind of jump up on stage for a scene, could be like someone in the ensemble or in the crowd or, or, or whatever. Um, because it was fun, man. It was my sister's company and you know, why not? Let's just have some fun. And, and, uh, that, that expanded into, in 2012, um, she put on a production of Chicago and, uh, we were a little, I love, I love that show, by the way. I'm unashamedly. It's a great show, show. man. It's, it's, it's really great show. It's funny. It's sexy. It's, it's awesome. And uh, anyway, we held auditions, and I was sitting. I was sitting on the uh, sign-in desk for auditions, and was noticing that we weren't really getting a lot of men coming to the auditions for whatever reason. And uh, that's kind of a running trait, specifically in Australia and specifically in Brisbane. Um, but it but it happens everywhere, mm-hmm. man. There's always a there's always a female dominance right, right. in in music theater, um, but uh i noticed we weren't getting a lot of men and i thought you know what fuck it man i'm just i'm just gonna go and audition just for some fun you know and so Mm -hmm. i i went upstairs and i was like all right i'm gonna do an audition and i and you know i did a sing and and did a read and whatever and uh they were like actually we think you'd be good in the role of fred casely slash ensemble are you interested um and i was like okay so, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I did, man, and 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 I played the role of Fred Casely, who has like two scenes in the show: one in the beginning of the show, uh, and then one toward the end of the show in the courtroom. Um, and it it was so much fun, man. It it, it was such a it was such a game changing experience for me, uh, being exposed to that because my other stage work previously had just been little random dribs and drabs and I wasn't actually officially in the cast and whatever. But but this one I was, you know, I was officially a cast member and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was really fun. And then that just kind of led me down the path of 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 doing shows. And there were a couple of shows I did because uh you know 
back in back in Brisbane on stage like I did a production of Sweet Charity for the same reason man they needed more men and they didn't have a suitable daddy Brubeck <laughs> and I wasn't even I wasn't even yeah. suitable for that man if you know the movie Sammy Davis Jr played daddy Brubeck in the movie man he has one song <laughs> in the show and uh and I wasn't even suitable for that but but somehow they cast me in that role and I sang it and was probably very actually I know I was very offensive um <laughs> Go, going back though a little bit uh i think if you like let's say they redid the story of james right. whiting um and you're american huh. and you had a similar path i think you would have taken the american marching uh thing i think you would have taken it as extreme as anyone i've ever met that has taken it i think you would have loved it just because just based on what you've what you've talked about today and everything i obviously it's hard to imagine right. that now you know after everything but i really think you would have been like a marching like dci nerd you know what you're probably right man you you pro you're probably right because between you and and our friend Carl Bizantz, who's also a you know a big marching guy as well and i get along with you guys so much and 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 we have so many similar things about us um i i don't doubt it man i mean i wasn't exp australia doesn't have a marching culture um there's a well gen generally no other country besides us has one i mean I, th I think there's some european countries that are starting a couple south american right. countries but other than that i mean you know there's nobody really even close besides yeah. scott so i mean i i was never particularly exposed to it and uh or, or experienced it so yeah man i mean that that that's actually really interesting to think and it boggles my mind to even think if i did it all over again and had a similar path uh but here in the united states that actually as you were saying that that sentence to me i was thinking man i wonder if i'd be so much more successful than i am now if i grew up here um because well i don't know it's it's different for everyone because a lot of people don't have the ambition that other people have so like i i firmly believe and i've noticed this in in different people um i feel like you could tell a lot about a person by their work ethic and, and by their attention to detail. So I, I, I feel like I've come across a lot of people that because of their attention to detail and their their hard work and their willingness to get the job done, I really don't a lot of the a lot of the guys that I'm talking about are not from America. I mean the Australian community in general in Vegas that just so happens to play drums, um, they y'all y'all make stuff happen and that goes along with the people that i've come across in my career so far um whether it be they're getting themselves through grad school or they're they're playing you know they're playing and, and creating music and making it happen and they're from you know small towns or situations that they probably never thought they would wind up in this area or like in this position that they're in so i i don't know i it's hard to say, but I really think either way you would have been fine. I mean, you are, you're fine Thanks, right now. Thanks, man. So. I really appreciate you saying that. And that's yeah. actually an interesting thing you bring up. And it, it is, it does seem to be a trait of 
the Australians that I've come across that either live in this country or, or are in this industry, specifically outside of Australia, because we have uh, a far lower quantity of opportunities in Australia in the arts than you do than than we do here in the United States. Um, the the people that I've seen that have that have really kind of made an impression and and have been really successful um, are the ones that have been able to be successful in that scene. So you look at, I mean, thank you so much. I mean, you acknowledge me and you know someone like Alex Stoper, who uh, also from Australia, right. wildly successful. Um, you know, man, we ha we had to come up through a program that didn't have that many opportunities, and so we had to make things happen for ourselves. Um, in a place where there wasn't so much happening and then when you then when you pluck us both out of that community and put us now here in vegas or, or the wider united states where there's you know there's a hundred or two hundred times the opportunities probably more um yeah we thrive man because we have this this hunger to succeed because we've been brought up somewhere where there's less less opportunity so we're much more proactive about getting the things that we want whereas it seems and this is no disrespect to to americans but because uh you guys a lot of you guys grow up around so much opportunity it kind of just finds its way to you so i, I see a lot of americans that without, without even right, knowing it I, either I, Right, right. Some some kids right now are in, are in euphoric right. programs that that are that really are not mm -hmm. common at all. Especially, you know, like the kids I teach um, in a, in this affluent area of Vegas. It's like, dude, you guys have no right. idea that the kind of the kind of instruction you're getting, like, and and the kind of resources mm -hmm. that you have. Totally, and uh, you know, it's it. it it, it, it's it's wild man because from what i see yeah there there seems to be less inclination towards chasing after things because there's a greater chance that they will find you here whereas it's that's so not the case in australia man i mean you need you need to make it happen for you and and in doing so no one's path is the same because everyone's had to figure it out a different way that is that is uh you know contextual to whatever whatever factors uh, are there at the time you know like and, and in a way i can relate because while I have had a lot of opportunities given to me because of the situation I've been in, the area I grew up in and everything, I still have this um, unwarranted desire to, maybe not desire is the right word. I would say this unwarranted um, motor going where I, I have to feel like I have to prove myself. Right. And... Be because of the opportunity and because of the people that I know that are successful, I'm like, okay, how can I prove to these people that I deserve to be in the ring yep. with them? And so, uh, I think it depends on the, on the, uh, on the mindset. Again, I think the mindset that makes you worthy of being a professional musician or professional creative in general, uh, you have to have that kind of like, okay, I have to, you can either go the like I have to eat this month or I have to pay rent route or you like you're like, okay, I have to keep proving myself. And eventually, you know, 
it gets to a point where you're like, okay, let's let's chill out for a sec. But at the same time, I really do enjoy having that mindset because it keeps it just keeps me it keeps allowing myself to get better and better and better to where to I eventually I'll get to a point where I'm like, wow, if I didn't have that mindset, then I wouldn't be where I am. I'm at. Yeah. Today. It's funny, man. And it's a great mindset to have, but it can also be a little bit poisonous as well in, in the way that because we, you know, you and I are very similar in this, in this way where, you know, we, we align ourselves with a goal or goals that we have uh, and then once we yeah. either achieve those goals or, or start getting close to achieving those goals, we then take that that bar of expectation that we set ourselves and we move it again and we push it up. We push it up further, yeah. which is great, man, because that's never that's satisfied right, because really. it makes us continuously strive to to be better and 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 strengthen ourselves and and whatever it may be. But the other side of the sword is that. It, it it can it can leave us feeling dissatisfied with what we're doing, like like things are never good enough because we keep we keep shifting it. Um, yeah, and I, I struggle with that, you know, still to this day. I think it was and up until the end of my time at UNLV, where I was working on my recital, and you know, I've been working on stuff throughout that time. I was telling this to my professors yesterday in my in my final defense. I was like, I am just now getting to the point where I'm happy with where I'm at. And that took a long time for me. And it's different for everyone. Like there could be people that are freshmen and undergrads right now. They're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fine. But whereas like people like us were like, okay, getting to a point of satisfaction of our progress and what we do is extremely hard just because of the factor of, like you said, it's like, setting that bar just a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. Yeah, man. And it's, you know, as a city, I mean, I'll reiterate it, that it's, it's great and it's, and it can be bad at, at the same time. And, and I think the key yeah. to it is, is trying to find the balance and acknowledging that. And, and I kind of came really deeply to that realization a few weeks ago when I start, I was updating my website and I was updating my biography and uh, my resume and all this kind of stuff. And I was really diving deep into some of the things that I'd done that I'd forgotten about, man. And and even even recalling recent things, uh, I was like, wow, did that all happen in that period of time? Like, for example, I at the end of uh, at at the end of November, or December, whatever it was, um, I looked back at the semester and forgot, man, that I that that. Uh, that wind orchestra composition that I wrote for UNLV premiered on, on October 3rd, for whatever reason, man, I thought it was, it was the previous semester of the previous year. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, man, I I had no idea that, that it had run together from, you know, doing fun home and that into doing a bunch of other different shows to Lion Witch in the Wardrobe to, uh, you know, to Sweeney Todd to, and it just kind of kept going back to back to back to back to back. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's it, it it's it's interesting because you know looking looking back uh, the in 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 a sense of I guess um, like looking back at like the kind of you know the kind of situations that we're in um, 
school is often a just a continuous like I gotta improve uh situation where like there's always something to work on, and then you get to the professional side of things where like you you're just preparing for the next gig. You actually sometimes don't know right. when the next gig is, and you don't really have a lot to pinpoint. So I I guess like. I guess that that mindset will help us in the professional world because then we'll never be not working on something. And I think that's important to have as far as like uh, people in our totally, man. And the way that mindset helps, and I and I think you're you're alluding to this, is that you know it's important for us to always keep learning and always keep bettering ourselves and you know, learning to become our own, our own teachers in a way, man, um, that, that, yeah, yeah that, that we're sometimes. taking care of business and we're continuously learning and maintaining relevance and all that kind of great stuff, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that is a extremely helpful and powerful note to end on. And, uh, I, it goes without saying, but you know, I'm extremely glad our our paths have crossed. You're a you're a dear friend. Uh, you're an inspiration to me and Thanks, to man. others. And I, I, you know, we're I'll be back in Vegas soon, and you know, obviously we'll see each other. But I also hope that we can, you know, do some great work together and, and see what we can get into. But uh, but I really appreciate you coming thank, on. Yeah, man. Thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate those lovely things that you said, and and yeah, man. I mean, you you're a great friend. Really happy that that our paths have have crossed, and and yeah, when all this madness is over, we'll uh, we'll get back together and hang and and do some playing. And I really appreciate that throughout this whole probably two hours of of talking, um, we didn't really talk about the current situation. Which is yeah, I'm yeah. so tired of it, hearing about it, man. So, and so let so let's many just people leave talk it right there, it. man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, that is um, episode number whatever of the Rude Metal Podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. James Whiting, uh, my dear friend, and um, that's it. We'll see you next time. <laughs>